true crime a podcast where three sleep deprived but surprisingly energetic friends sit down once a week to drink virtually <clears throat> and discuss true crime my voice isn't here this morning hello ladies hello why it's hello it's very early it, it is, is early. a bit early it is so, sunday morning it's 10 30 ish hour time in the mountain standard time sunny's I'm, a little bit earlier than that 10 30 yep we were Brittle. back from our hiatus where I was out watching people supposed to be training for a month in the backwoods of Louisiana. You know what? It's the thought that counts. Uh, and there was very little. Back. Yeah, I. Happy it was that you're here. It was a time. And that you're a, in one piece. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah, apparently was, that's a thing. Trying to do a podcast with just a torso um, would have been challenging. So glad that all of the pieces made it back. <laughs> all of the pieces made it back. I've been yes. sleeping my ass off because um, they had us in a, it was a 50 person bay with 56 people and there was lots of snoring and farting. So there's only two women <laughs> in one bathroom. And just, I was I like, I can't just, you know how weird I am about being able to share a room in general, especially sharing a bathroom with literally anyone. So mm-hmm. absolutely not. I will, you I will. To hold your farts in for a month. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> no one else face. You'd have like swollen face. Just like, I would. They're like, <laughs> is, does your face always look like that? I was like, thanks for noticing it's the farts. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, in nine months, I want to circle back around so I can give my real opinion about things. But for now, yes. I will just Make say, circle but, back. Okay, so given that it's this early in the morning, um, what you got in your cups, ladies? You got you got a cup? I got coffee. You got coffee? coffee. Yeah. Oh, see, I did. I had a couple cup of, couple of cups of coffee, and then I'm like, no, I'm gonna. Uh, want like a mimosa, but I didn't have anything that was bubbly. So I have, I, I guess I'm doing the Randy job today. I've got, I've got the vodka, <laughs> got the vodka, uh, with some grapefruit juice, and a splash of um, sparkling tonic water. And it's yummy. Um, this morning, ladies, it's a tale of of two mugs, really. So <laughs> <laughs> the first mug <laughs> is coffee. Yeah. <laughs> second mug is courtesy of our darling randy actually and mm, ooh, that is glue vine that you ooh. had brought to me in colorado because i figure something kind of like spicy warm in the morning yeah it's like coffee adjacent right coffee adjacent. What, what, wait what is that what did you call it i've never heard of that it's glue vine glue vine it's hot and wine yeah, cool. it's spiced. Hot, hot temperature, not hot, like spicy. Mm-hmm. Cool, that's neat. Yeah, so it's got all sorts of like cinnamon and nutmeg and star of anise and that kind of thing. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. I was, was going to have, the only alcohol I have in the house is vodka and wine, but I have to go to the gym today, so that's later. Eh. Eh. I'm also not going to work tomorrow. They did this thing 
it's like, you know, I'm in Colorado and it's cold and they're like, okay, so we're going to do our, we're going to start working out in the afternoon when it's warmer. I'm like, okay, it's February. It's fine. Um, they did it for exactly four days and they're like back to the morning. God damn it. Okay. So yeah. AJ, you have our case today. Yes. I do. I do. I'd like to first though, dedicate this episode to the woman who gave birth to me. Today is her birthday. Oh, <gasps> happy birthday. Happy birthday, mama. Thank you for pushing me out of your loins. I really appreciate <laughs> you growing me inside of your belly. Yes. Happy you nailed birthday. it. So happy birthday, mom. Yes. This episode is for you. She has started listening to our show mama, and she loves mama. it. So mama, I hope she hears mama. this. Happy birthday, mom. I love you very much. Happy mama birthday. Long. Mm-hmm. We love you long time. <laughs> she loves you long time, too. <laughs> dancing with your mother on new year's eve yep. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, today's case i've been working on for a little while and i've been obsessed with um investigative genetic genealogy uh so when that yes golden state killer was that when that case was busted wide open and mm-hmm. this was credited for that it was like just full-on obsession after that trying to figure this out and like getting other cases and so I wanted to start with a little bit of background on what is investigative genetic genealogy other than it's the new career that I want to go for um okay so this is from actually okay let me let me take one step back have y'all heard of that new open ai uh engine like dolly no it's called this one is called uh chat open ai it sounds I'm, familiar it may have why is my my like my eyes are just leaking which they like to do in the morning so i'm just like hey would you like eyeliner down to your knees no <laughs> um I, I i'll bet that it's similar to dolly but continue okay so you can go on it and ask it to explain anything and it's like the google but it'll write like the page for you or it'll give you all the information AJ, it's like it. what did you just call it the google the google I did. <laughs> the, 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 what is the, the being, the Facebook, the Facebook, Facebook, so, the interwebs, the interwebs. Yep. So I went onto this open AI and I put explain investigative genetic genealogy. And so this is what it gave me back. Oh, now I have to scroll back up. Okay. Bah, bah, bah. All right, investigative genetic genealogy is the use of DNA analysis and genealogical research techniques to solve crimes and identify unknown suspects or victims. This emerging field combines the power of genetic analysis with traditional genealogical research methods to help law enforcement agencies solve cold cases and bring justice to victims and their families. It's really being hailed as like, now there will never be a cold case. As long as there's some sort of uh, genetic fingerprint left at the crime scene. I'll be able to trace it in some way to somebody. Right. So this is really changing the landscape. The process of investigative genetic genealogy typically starts with a collection of a DNA sample from a crime scene. This sample is then analyzed to determine the genetic profile of the suspect or victim. The genetic profile is then compared to a large database of genetic profiles, such as the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, to see if there is a match. If there is no match in the database, investigators may use genealogical research methods to build a family tree 
and identify potential relatives of the suspect or victim. By tracing the ancestry and family connections of the suspect or victim, investigators can build a list of potential leads that can further be investigated. Investigative genetic genealogy is a rapidly developing field and is having a major impact on the ability of law enforcement agencies to solve crimes. As technology improves and the number of people who have voluntarily submitted their DNA to genealogy databases continues to grow, the potential for this technique to solve crimes will only increase. So that's a little bit of background on what that- So excited that that exists. Although we miss the heyday for like just being able to I love how John Mulaney talks about it in a stand-up where he's like, you know, back in the day, they're like, hmm, there's, uh, excuse me, detective, there's a big pool of blood over here. He's like, ah, gross. Anyway, about this hunch of mine. (laughs) (laughs) He's not wrong. That's what they thought. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um, And they'd be like, oh, a big pool of blood. Let's go walk through it. Yeah, let's just, ah, yeah, watch your shoes. (laughs) Splish, splash. Yeah. Let's touch everything. Yeah, touch everything. Walk through let the blood. On, let onlookers come in. Uh-huh. Um, so I was getting really frustrated because I had this whole like list of cases that were solved using this te- technology, but so many of them were just little, like there wasn't enough information. Like it was just like, this is the crime. It got solved. Like there was nothing on the victim. There was nothing really on the killer. There was just nothing substantial. So I was just really kind of going in circles, um, trying to find a case that was like really impactful. And mm-hmm. I think, I think I did it. I think I found one. Woo! Um, and before I get into the details, I do want to say that this was featured on um, an Unsolved Mysteries episode, episode 27 in season three. However, good luck finding that episode because I couldn't fucking find it to save my life. I got on Prime, I got on Hulu, I got on YouTube, and it, episode, uh, season three stops at episode 22 everywhere I look. So I could not find <sighs> the GD video of that episode. But I did find another podcast that has covered this case in a kind of a different lens. And their podcast, I have it in my notes up here, maybe. I just want to, you know, if anybody wants to go listen to that podcast, they just talk about it in a different kind of lens other than this technology that we're about to get into. Mm, Where did I find it? Oh, okay. The podcast is called They Will Kill. That's the podcast. Yeah, go go listen to the podcast. Go watch the episode if you can find it. If you do find it, please send it to me because I want to fucking watch it. (laughs) Okay. I know it aired in like 1991. So, you know, the technology for their filming is going to be awesome. Okay. Forget how long that show's been on. Forever. 1980s, late 1980s. Then there's the new one now that's really good too. And they wonder why people our age are obsessed with true crime. I mean, hello, we put ourselves to bed in the 80s to unsolved mysteries. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day because it's like, oh, if you're a white woman, you're obsessed with true crime. When I was in middle school, I did one of my book reports on the different types of death penalties. So I think this has been a lifelong obsession. I was definitely not allowed to be anywhere near that, but when we were all asked to pick our Greek or Roman mythological characters, I f- I threatened all the boys and fought them because I wanted Hades. So I guess we're still, you know. 
it's part of our fabric. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Not even in fourth grade. <laughs> so for this case, we're going to go visit Colorado in the year 1982. Um, and we're going to talk about the two victims primarily. And their names were Barbara Jo Oberhauser and Annette K. Schnee. Uh, going forward, though, we're going to call Barbara Bobby Joe because that's what people called her. So we're going to respect that. So we're going to talk about Bobby Joe and Annette. Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe. That's how you know you're white. Tell me you're white without telling me you're white. Bobby Joe. <laughs> and the second one is Joe. Okay, so we're going to be in Breckenridge, Colorado. Now, both of these women um, both disappeared on January 6th, 1982 in Breckenridge, Colorado. So very, very cold also. All right, so 29-year-old Bobby How Bobby Joe Howitz. Ober, I'm going to mess up her last name so many times. We're just going to go with Bobby Joe. BJ. There we go. Bobby Joe. Maybe not BJ. Just Bobby Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 29-year-old Bobby Joe and 21-year-old Annette Schnee both disappeared on January 6, 1982. They were last seen separately in Broken Breckenridge, Colorado a small ski resort in the Rocky Mountains with a population at the time of about 1,200 people. Okay. Jump back over here. Sorry, I'm a, kind of in a few places. All right. On January 7th, Bobby's body was found off a highway of Highway 9 near a scenic overlook near the summit of Hoosier Pass, five miles south of Breckenridge. She had been shot twice, um, but the bullets are not what killed her. Only two pieces of evidence were found, a set of house keys and an orange sock. Police were mystified. The keys belonged to her, but the sock did not. Now, when she went missing in the, she had gotten off of work and her husband had called her, his name was Jeff, and he told her he'd come pick her up. And I guess in this little tiny town, like everybody knew each other and like hitchhiking was not a big deal. In fact, it was a common practice. They even had like a common place that people could go wait to be picked up. Just like, mm -hmm. okay, hey, you need a ride, let's go. So witnesses had said that they had seen Bobby Joe around this area, um, but she never made it home that night. She never got home to her husband. Um, and then they, these skiers found her, um, but didn't approach the body. They knew they had found a body and then went immediately to the police and she was, her body was found the next day. Okay. So police were mystified. The keys belonged to her, but she didn't, but the sock did not. Six months later and 13 miles away, Annette's body was found. This time in Sacramento, Creek, six months, 13 miles. 13 miles. Okay. She had also been shot to death. Incredibly, she was wearing the other orange sock. I think I remember hearing about this case because the orange sock sounds familiar. Weird. Well, fun fact, if you Google orange sock murder, you're going to get a lot of cases because apparently orange socks in murder cases is a thing. Note to self, don't buy any yeah. orange socks. Don't because you don't want to end up in that list. Yeah, yep. buy, buy like plaid. I don't know. Okay, the murdered women were both area residents. They had both disappeared on the same day, January 6th, and had been shot with a medium caliber revolver. By all accounts, they had never met. Their bodies were found 13 miles apart and six months in time span. Mm -hmm. However, police are certain that they were murdered on the same night by the same man. 
of course, the main suspect immediately became Bobby Joe's husband, Jeff. Um, and since those murders, he staunchly maintained his innocence. In fact, he reported her missing at 3 a.m. when he woke up and she wasn't home. He went to immediately to the police, but they refused to file a missing persons report because it was still at night. She might have fallen asleep at a friend's house or something. And so they refused to do anything about it that night. So he started getting um, like close friends and family together to start searching for her. So when the sun come up, he went searching for her um, and they were trying to trace her, her steps. And he spots uh, an item like in a field and it's her backpack. So he finds her backpack, takes it to the police and is like, look, this is where her backpack was. This is hers. It has her stuff in it. And so he's he's really trying to cooperate. He wants to find his wife, um, but he's just at the top of their list as far as suspects go. Okay. And okay, so just days before she had vanished, he and Bobby Joe had decided they were gonna try and start having kids. They had been married um, since July, 1977. So they were married about four and a half years before her murder. Um, now, he described their marriage as very loving. They were in love to get, they were in love. They were going to have children, but Bobby Joe's friends and family gave some different accounts saying like that there was just something off about their relationship. Something didn't make sense. Like it just didn't feel right to like their friends and family. And so that kept pushing them further, further and further up the suspect list. Cause now the stories don't match. And his alibi was, Hey, I was home alone. I made, I made dinner for us. Bobby Joe had just gotten um, a, promotion at her job and so he was waiting for her to come home and celebrate with her and fell asleep on the couch so he didn't have really a solid alibi that could be you know corroborated I always feel bad though when like it's when you're alone and let's say you are an innocent person and you're like I just was alone I don't know like I can't mm -hmm. I don't have a receipt for every for being alone yeah for being yeah. alone yeah. it's like when they're like you have a package that's missing and they're like can you please send a picture and you're like what would you what specifically what? would you like a picture of my hand without the item in it here it is not here here it is not in my tiny hand you can't prove a negative mm -mm. yeah okay um so she had worked as a receptionist and was celebrating her promotion when she'd gone out with friends that night and so he knew like this was not normal she had left um, that morning at 7.15 a.m. and hitched hike, hitchhiked to work. Hitchhiking was quite common in the area and the uh, residents often stopped for people that they knew. At 6.20 p.m., she called home to tell them that she was at the village pub having drinks, celebrating her promotions with friends from her promotion with her friends. He made dinner and waited for her to come home. And again, he, he woke up in the, in the middle of the night. She hadn't come home. He went to go look for her. There, there it is. Okay, I had to find my, my place again. All right. Um, so then, uh, so this next morning also, a farmer who lived 30 miles outside of Breckenridge found Bobby Joe's driver's license on his property. So Jeff went with two of his friends to pick up the license. On the, on the way, this is when they made their discovery. While driving past a field, he noticed something blue in the snow, and it was her backpack. Um, and that she had left with for work. He also found one of her gloves and on the glove, it was spattered with blood and several like uh. bloody tissues. Jeff's friends helped him to organize a search and they, they insisted he remain at home while they set out cross country. <laughs> Two hours later, the search party came across bodies like Bobby Joe's lifeless body. She was found more than 15 miles from where her backpack was discovered. 
police found three puzzling clues. Only her footprints were at the crime scene. A plastic cord was tied around one of her wrists. And then, so that plastic cord, it was a zip tie and there was another zip tie like looped through it, but it wasn't attached to her. So what they speculate happened was that she was being uh, bound by her, um, by the, the killer, her, but whoever, she was yeah. able to get free from it and get away from him. That's what they they were starting to speculate. Okay. And of, of course, they also had the single orange sock that was found nearby. Was they that no? And that sock wasn't hers. No. Mm-hmm. I, I, from what I believe, and I think it might mention it, but I think she was fully clothed when she was found. Mm-hmm. So she had her socks on. Mysterious orange socks. Mm-hmm. So the same day Bobby Joe's body was found, Annette was reported missing. She was a chambermaid and a cocktail waitress who worked in Frisco and lived in Blue River. Like Bobby Joe, she often hitchhiked to work. She was also an aspiring model. She was trying to get into acting. And I think I heard I, in one of the things I, I read, she was also like either applying to be a flight attendant or had worked as a flight attendant, which is very beautiful. When I post the pictures, you'll see these women. Um, but, and then so from the start, they knew that these were connected because of that orange sock like it was determined like yes for sure this orange sock belonged to a weird detail it's a very weird detail this case has a lot of weird fucking details that are like how did that even come to fruition it's it's crazy when investigators first asked jeff if he knew annette he denied it Several days later, after seeing her picture in the newspaper, he contacted the police and said that he did, in fact, know her and had given her his business card. He claimed that he had once picked her up when she was hitchhiking. He said that he never saw or heard from her after that. And so it was confirmed that when Annette's body was found in her, uh, she had a plastic wallet and she had two things in her wallet. And one of those things was uh, Jeff's business card. So again, like that, the police are like, man. Okay, you clearly... (laughs) Clearly, you know both these women. You're a little bit too aggressive in wanting to help, but they had nothing. They, for lack of a better word, they didn't have a smoking gun. They didn't have enough mm-hmm. solid evidence to really, yeah, try him. And he passed like two polygraph tests. You know, he was that's wild. Very cooperative. Okay, where was I? All right. He claimed that he had once picked her up when she was hitchhiking. He said that he never saw or heard from her after that. On July 3rd, 1982, six months after she disappeared, her body was found. Police were stunned when they discovered she was wearing the matching orange sock. Jeff's business card was found in her wallet. Her backpack was later found close to where Bobby Joe's body was found. Investigators began to focus on Jeff since he had connections to both victims. So then what happened on January 6th, 1982? That afternoon, Annette left her chambermaid job in Frisco early because she was not feeling well. She was last seen leaving a pharmacy in Breckenridge about 4 p.m. while in deep conversation with an unknown dark-haired woman. She was, huh. supposed to be, she was supposed to work at a bar called The Flipside at 8 p.m. that night. Police believe that around 5 p.m. she set out to hitchhike home and get ready for work. The killer picked her up and drove 20 miles south of Breckenridge, taking her down a small dead-end road. She was then either made to disrobe or was undressed by him. She was sexually assaulted and then allowed to get dressed. While she was doing so, she was, uh, she apparently found one long sock and put it on, but could not find the second one, but then put a booty on her foot and 
put her boots on. She apparently escaped while running away. She was shot in the back. Police believe that the killer then drove back to Breckenridge and found a second victim, Bobby Joe. He drove her 10 miles south of Breckenridge. Same night. That's such unusual behavior. Mm -hmm. That's really unusual behavior. Very quick. Hmm. No cooling off time. Yeah, that's extra strange. Mm -hmm. He drove her 10 miles south to the parking lot of a scenic overlook where he apparently attempted to rape her. Police believe that she fought him and subsequently escaped from the vehicle. While escaping, the other orange booty came out with her. So she ran down the highway toward her home. It is believed that he tried to stop her and talk to her. When he pulled the gun out, she ran into the snow. He then shot her twice as she turned away from him. After that, she ran up over a small embankment of snow and then drove down the other side into a deep snow where she was later found dead. So she, she gets away, she gets shot, she's still running, she slides down this hill, it's freezing oh, cold. So the, it, she bled to death and she froze to death. <sighs> That's how this woman died, but she died fighting. Jeff does not believe that Bobby Joe would have gotten into a vehicle with strangers. He points out that they had talked earlier about him giving her a ride but that she could have called back if she needed one. He thinks that she knew someone at the bar and that they had left together with the promise of them taking her home. Approximately two months after Bobby Joe's murder, Jeff submitted to a polygraph test and passed. From day one, he had insisted that he had an alibi. According to him, during the time of the murders, when they were committed, he was with an acquaintance who had dropped by for a visit. But for nearly nine years, no one could find this man. Finally, in December, 1990, he surfaced when police interviewed him, he stated that he had been in Jeff's house that night. However, the times he gave police did not match up with the times Jeff gave them. As a result, they were unable to determine whether or not the man was with Jeff during the time of the murders. Interesting. Uh, and Jeff, at that point, still remained a main suspect in the case. He believes that if investigators had focused on other avenues and leads instead of focusing on him, they could have been able to find out who really killed Bobby Joe and Annette. So Jeff was always a suspect, um, and they found that they were that it was more than a coincidence that he had known both victims and discovered Bobby's backpack in a remote field. So at the time when they also, I, I don't know if I, get, if, I, if I wrote it down in here, but the blood spatter that was on her glove, they, at the time, back in 1982, they were only really able to test it for blood type, mm -hmm. and yep. the blood type on the glove was the same as Bobby Joe's. So they were under the assumption that it was her it was blood hers. yeah okay spoiler alert it was not Ooh. Ba -ba. police looked into several different suspects in the case one was a cab driver by the name of thomas edward luther who beat and raped a hitchhiker after picking her up in breckenridge in february 1982 that seems While fine he allegedly bragged about being responsible for the murders. According to his girlfriend, he did what? not come home on the night of the murders. This man has a girlfriend. Who is this? Okay, I have questions for her. Who? Yeah. He also anyway. lied to investigators and said he was at work at the time. Another suspect was alleged serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. Yet another suspect was Tracy Petrocelli, who murdered his fiance in 1981 and went on a multiple state crime spree. During this time, he stayed at Annette's workplace, the Holiday Inn in Frisco. 
Police would likely to question the unidentified dark haired woman last seen with Annette on January 6th. She was described as a white female, 5'4", and slender build. She was not considered a suspect. They would also like to identify a man whose photograph was in her wallet. So the only other item in her wallet when she was found was a very handsome, sorry, my back is like hurts, um, a handsome military man. Like, I, I don't remember what branch, but nobody in her friend circle knew who this person was and nobody in her family knew who, who this person was. So she just had this picture and no, no, nobody knew. Okay. So let me jump. I want to get all the good stuff in here. All right. So I'm going to, let me go back over here. So this, that night when the, both women were uh, murdered, the weather was really cold and they're, oh, wait, do you want to know the twist or do you want to know the, the, how it was solved? Which one first? The twist. Let's, okay. let's hear the twist. So the same night that these two women go missing, miraculously, this driver in Breckenridge, uh, his vehicle had slid off the road and he had gotten out of the vehicle to try to walk to the, uh, a local like ski chalet that was that he remembered being nearby. But he goes about 100 to 200 yards and decides it's way too fucking cold. I can't, I'm not going to make it. So he goes back to his truck and a low flying aircraft comes over and he's like signaling them with his lights and a flashlight. They pick him up and rescue him. This makes national news, 1982. Everybody's like, oh my God, Alan Lee Phillips is this man who SOS and been spotted by a United Airlines passenger. How plane. fortunate. And uh, he made the comment of like how cold it was and uh, just, it was a miracle that he was rescued by this plane mm -hmm. that you could I, just the possibility of that is so mind-boggling to me that all of these things happened and he's all the same night mm -hmm. all the same night he's stranded in the cold he got his truck stuck stuck in a snowdrift. when they pick him up his face is covered in scratches and he tells them, oh, it was just because I was, I slipped out of coming out of the truck when I was trying to hike. And th that's where the scratches are from. And they're like, oh, we're, we're just. Okay. Mm. Mm. It was a bramble bush. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 20 below zero. This man is saved. Why? <laughs> so how did they solve it, AJ? Okay. So going back to the genetic genealogy all right hold on now i gotta find I got, i'm jumping back too many too many documents bah, bah, bah. good lord aj get to it AJ is the master of suspense. Sorry, <laughs> but you got the twist. We got All right, the twist. so now initially, police believed that the blood found on the tissue on the tissues and Bobby's glove belonged to her because it was the same blood type. However, in the 1990s, when they tested it again, technology is a tiny bit better. They determined that it came from a male. 
and that it did not in fact belong to Jeff. So her husband is now ruled out as a suspect. It only took over 15 years. As a result, and this of other evidence, including several alibi witnesses, he was eventually cleared as a suspect in the murders. Testing also determined that the blood did not belong to either of the other suspects, Luther or Petrocelli. On February 21st, 2021, 70-year-old Alan Lee Phillips was arrested and charged with the murders. He was also charged with kidnapping and assault with a deadly weapon. Investigators aided by United Data Connect used genetic genealogy to link the DNA evidence to him. This process involves the DNA sample of the unknown suspect, et cetera, exactly what I covered in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So investigators suspect that Philip may may have been involved in other crimes throughout Colorado. No duh, you think? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, it was discovered that on the same night as the murders, he was rescued. There's the plot twist. So in September, 2022, Phillips went on trial. And on September 15th, a jury convicted him of all charges, including first degree murder, after deliberation and first-degree murder involving felony, kidnapping, and robbery. On November 7th, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Sadly, Bobby Joe's brother Kelly and father Thomas passed away before this case was solved. Now, on Danette Schnee, I don't have as much information on, about her as um, Bobby Joe, but that orange sock connected the two women and undoubtedly helped solve their own their own murders so that's the case of bobby joe oh my a weird orange sock and a killer by an airplane the same night he killed two people i wonder if they would have like if they would have found out it was him if he had died out there in the in the elements maybe eventually because his family members had put up their DNA in the, the databases. I was uh, oh, wow. looking up if, because like a ton of cases have been solved and actually a lot of people have been exonerated with um, mm-hmm. genealogy testing, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, so Maryland and Montana back in 2021 passed laws limiting law enforcement's ability to use genetic genealogy. And why I thought this was interesting is the so they're calling this woman a privacy advocate um her name is miss ram i don't know what her first name is but um it says that she was worried about genetic genealogy since 2018 when it was used to great fanfare to reveal the identity of the golden state killer and i wonder how your mind works when a serial killer is caught using something and you're like this needs to be limited right there's I think there's a lot of people though and I had this argument recently where people are like well I'm never going to submit my you know my material for you know to find out anything because I don't want them using it and I'm like I think that there is a certain line of I'm a big fan of I don't mind if I lose some of my privacy if it is for the greater good where like understanding diseases or catching serial killers like it's worth it and identifying identifying victims who didn't have mm-hmm. uh, yes. an identity, babies that are found, children, women. These these people are now getting a name. Yeah. So I'm and like, yeah. am I as an individual? Am I more important than the this knowledge? I'm not. And it's I think it's ridiculous if anybody feels that way. This personal 
personal opinion op-ed with anything i think consent is key and if you are the one submitting your dna and you mm -hmm. say yes i do allow it to be used in public databases mm -hmm. you've given consent and i think yep. that that's the important part and if you say no i do not give consent well that's the so there this article is from the new york times i'll have it in the show notes um so for the law in maryland uh, investigators can only use genealogy companies that have informed their customers that they're going to be using their, you know, their genetic markers and their DNA to, you know, third party uh, companies to potentially solve crimes. Um, to that, Ms. Ram said, we know well that most people do not read these kinds of forms closely. This is likely to generate unwitting inclusion rather than actual consent. Like. Okay, well, maybe read some stuff. I don't know. Like someone else who's outspoken against it, um, a Florida woman doesn't have her name. Uh, That's all we need, Florida woman, full yeah. stop. Oh, God. So <laughs> I, I can't make this shit up. Um, in 2018, police in Orlando, Florida asked a woman for a DNA test, telling her that they believe she was related to a dead person they're trying to identify. She complied only to find out that they were investigating her son, who was subsequently arrested and charged with murder. Now that's that's entrapment. That's, isn't it? I mean, the police can lie to you. True. And then so in Maryland, they so one of the law one of the senators was trying to just ban genealogy testing outright. Uh mm -hmm. that didn't go through. But so there's a stipulation in the law that by 2024 genealogists working on cases they must be professionally certified uh that doesn't exist like that credentialing doesn't exist so i wonder what's going to happen in 2024 with maryland uh -uh. i don't know but it sounds like i it, that would be researching genetic genealogies for a, a criminal department sounds like my dream job I would love that. So I maybe we start that. a certification program where and then we, we, we uh, hook it up in Maryland. We'll if anybody knows, at me. And it's it's interesting. Like I guess I'd have to look into a little bit more, but the, they're saying it goes against the Fourth Amendment, um, hmm. like the rights to privacy and uh, what's it called? Search and seizure. Uh, my brain's not working. Okay. I mean, when they wrote those, though, they didn't know about any of these possibilities. Like so many of the things when they were written of you can or can't do these things were not written in mind in the mind of like what's happening in 2023. Right. So, right. well, they one of the big things is they're like, well, you know, we already have CODIS that we can use to identify people. So why do we need, you know, genetic genealogy? But CODIS uses about two dozen markers. Uh, genetic markers to identify a person and these genetic genealogy branches use um hundreds of thousands of genetic markers so it seems so like, way more accurate right um, you're so, also able to get now with the technology we have now like using a blood sample they could even construct what their phenotypes would look like yeah what is their bone structure what is right. their yep. what is their race what is their all these things you mean they, they do it really inaccurately on bones but uh kind of like that sort of, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. i just love that because there is i mean 
probably hundreds of thousands of cold cases that haven't been solved. And it just, it makes me happy to think that these like rapists and these murderers are looking over their shoulder. Like, like oh, I didn't know snap. DNA existed in the eighties yep. and I left all kinds of evidence behind. And now maybe don't murder people. Maybe yeah. don't do that. Maybe don't, just don't hurt people. It, but at the same time, I get, I can't help but get so angry because these men have been allowed to live for decades their whole life you know yeah. and they get caught Normal. in their 70s or 80s like the golden state killer like what kind of just it's not the same that? yeah it, it is justice it is getting answers closure it, it, it gives a level of knowledge but it's it just makes me fucking angry that they got to live They're and probably ass. are guilty of so many other crimes just like this guy alan phillips you cannot tell me that that was either the, his first time or his last time doing something like this. Yeah, you After go and you kill two women the same night. There's no mm-hmm. way that was the first But you time. know what? He got caught, and that's what counts. That's what counts. That's what counts. I just cry openly in my bathtub, as you well know. <laughs> the Skittles. <laughs> All the Skittles. All the Skittles. Well, that's my case, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody. Bravo, AJ. Bravo. I'm glad that you brought it because I'd, I'd heard of the orange sock case. I didn't realize that they had solved it. Well, there's a lot of orange sock cases. There's a, they're like, go Google it. You'll, there, I found at least four. I wonder if I'm thinking of the same one then. I'll have to look it up. Okay. I think Morbid covered it a while ago. Well, thank you, oh, AJ. Hear on Morbid that they um, identified the Somerset man mm-hmm. or the, the summer. Somerton man, Somerton man in Australia. His his identity had like not been known, and oh, he, no. his identity was solved through genetic genealogy. God, what is what is that case? Like Did he you... was only he was found fully clothed on a beach, like with dress shoes. Like this was like in the 1940s. Oh yeah, so, I didn't know that they solved that one. They figured it out, and it was because of genetic genealogy. Yeah, Somerset man. Uh, his body was found in 19, December 1948 on a beach in Somerton Park, a suburb of Adelaide, South Australia. And he, it's a wild case, like just like the little bits of um, clues that they got for him. But his identity was eventually solved from genetic genealogy. Morbid is a fantastic case on him. I think it's a two-parter. It was really good. Um, not because of genetic genealogy, but cases that are being solved uh the delphi murders the man mm-hmm. on the bridge they arrested yep. somebody i saw that i saw that which it was kind of weird how it took them so long to arrest him but and he was living in the town like he he was a resident mm-hmm. yeah so he hasn't been a trial yet you know innocent until proven guilty but wow season of justice mm-hmm. well thanks aj you're welcome i I just want really quick are y'all either one of you following the cult mom case Mm -mm. lori vallow lori vallow daybell and her husband chad daybell is she the one that like her husband died and then she married somebody else and then her kids went missing and she was found living in hawaii yep is she is she on trial she's in jail awaiting trial she's trying to get them to throw out the case because her right to a speedy trial has been violated because she's been in jail over a thousand days. But so where's her kids? Dead. Did they find them? Yeah, they found them <laughs> on the property. Oh, okay. They were murdered. Jesus. 
for months she was collecting the little boy's social security because he was a ward of the state Mm -hmm. she adopted him she's he's like technically her nephew but she ends up adopting him getting his social security benefits and she continues to cash him in after he goes missing why would you adopt a kid and then kill them they believed she believed that she was a divine people out there she could like see dark and light in people and if she saw dark in you then demons were attached to you and that she saw demons in her children and it's a crazy case okay i i'm following it it's wild it might be something we get to cover it's gonna be wild it's gonna be it's it's tragic but fascinating wrong with people so many things okay well thanks for listening follow us on the social media spaces leave us a kind review tell your friends bourbon wine and two crime at bourbon one two crime oh i don't know do we have a website no i mean like our what is our email oh bourbon one and true crime at uh yahoo.com yeah send us case suggestions subscribe send send us suggestions leave a five-star review woohoo yeah bye everybody next time Bye. Bye. bye